Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Kids, who in here likes a great story? Anybody in here like a great story? Who likes it? So somebody tell me their favorite story. It could be a book or a movie. Yes, favorite story. Chronicles of Narnia, solid choice. Harry Potter, solid choice also. Yes, ma'am. What's that? Oh, okay. I didn't need to become familiar with that one. Listen, the Super Mario Brothers movie is excellent, and I will allow that to be uh, on the pillar of greatness. Let's see. Yes, sir. Lord of the Rings, who said that? All right, you win the day, obviously. So congratulations. That's obviously the right answer for those of you adults out there who are wondering. Um, So we all love a a great story. So kids, we're going to be talking about what many have called the greatest story, and then we're going to be talking about some elements that might seem odd in the greatest story ever told. And so while we're doing that, there's some uh, great activities on the activity sheets there for you. So um, for reasons I won't go into, my family for the last week was forced to watch a lot of movies. Um, We weren't able to leave the house, and that's just kind of what we did with our Christmas as we lied around and we watched a lot of movies. So I've watched all three Back to the Futures. Obviously, I watched all three Lord of the Rings. And um, there is something about stories that that grip us, right? Now, we live in an odd world wherein this idea of stories over the last 50 years has been very much altered. Um, I'll go into it a little bit, but I'd be happy to unpack it more with you if you are interested in such things. There was a movement known as postmodernism. If you've been a Christian any time over the last several decades, you've heard that term postmodernism, right? Raise your hand as an adult if you've heard the idea of postmodernism. Well, postmodernism begins as a literary, linguistic, philosophical movement, but there are a lot of implications. And so this movement of postmodernism, which begins by uh, in France with some French philosophers, and I will say over the last hundred years, most bad ideas come from France. Um, <laughs> the French philosophers, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, they started to formulate these ideas that become postmodernism. And one of the things that is so, um, allows it to be so invasive is that they, they say some true things. Uh, any great bad idea has some element of truth that allows it to grip entire groups of people, right? Um, and so one of the, Ideas that they mentioned was that every story that we approach can have an infinite number of possible interpretations, which on the surface is relatively true. If you and I read the same book, we can interpret it very differently. If we read the same paragraph, it's easy for us to have, even if they're nuanced differences, a difference in interpretation. Where they're wrong is that they assert there's no such thing as a right interpretation and everything is just relative, right? Now, we can talk through how those ideas are self-defeating. The idea that truth is relative is itself uh, a truth statement, thus making it relative. It's a self-defeating ideology. But one of the things that they do in regards to stories 
is they say, yes, human beings are storytelling creatures. They're not the first uh, group of thinkers to come up with this. In fact, that's a pretty prominent understanding of one of the crucial aspects of what it means to be humans. We're storytelling creatures. We form the entirety of our lives around story. In fact, when you're here this morning, liturgy is an immersive story. We are immersed into a broader story. We place our story inside of that story via liturgy. But what they say is all of these stories are made up. Those meta-narratives, those big overarching stories that sort of drive civilizations and drive peoples are all just made up. And then they go on to say that they're made up mostly in order that those who make them up have power over the people that believe those stories. And they reject wholesale those ideas of meta-narrative, especially the Christian meta-narrative, the Postmodernists don't have much good things to say about that logocentrism, as they put it, or logos central idea, that story that centers on Christ. The problem, of course, is that that's permeated our, our entire society, where we no longer have agreements on what is a great story. But I would argue that We inherently know it because we're drawn to great stories. And I know that we've talked about this many a time, many times that I stand up here. But there is a reason why the Lord of the Rings is sort of uh, has the ability to transcend cultures and times. Because in that story is contained this bigger meta narrative, this greatest story ever told, even in a fantasy novel that Tolkien sets out to write an English uh, epic that is taking place long before history, right? People are drawn to that story. It's translated into over 50 languages. It's widely regarded as one of the best stories, if not the best story of the 20th century. So why does that have such long-reaching and broad appeal? And I think it's because we recognize in a great story our heart's longing for the greatest story, especially for that greatest story to be true. In fact, Tolkien says that himself. He says that when you read the Christian story, there is no other story that you would rather be true than that one. So he says, even if you don't believe it's true, it is the story that you would rather be true than any other Right. If we're making up stories and I say one story, when we when we cease to be, when our lives end, we sort of just no longer exist. And that's the end is not as appealing as as there is a hope for redemption, the restoration of the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth that we might get to live in peace and joy for all eternity. That, that obviously is a better story. And. What Tolkien argues is what makes it a better story is it has all three elements of what's necessary for something to be great. It is good. It is beautiful. And most importantly, it is true. That it is this true story. So all the stories we're ever drawn to in our lives um, are best because they often at least allude to this bigger greater story. And so we're immersed in the beginning of the greatest story ever told, that Christ becomes incarnate, the incarnate word of God. God himself becomes a human being. 
That's an astonishing part of the story. Tolkien says that the incarnation is the catastrophe of creation. He makes up a word there. So rather than a catastrophe, a sudden and terrible bout of uh, bad luck, it's a catastrophe, sudden and unexplained great news, right? And he says, the great news of creation is the incarnation. It's the best news of all creation that God himself becomes a part of creation. And he says, the catastrophe of the incarnation is the resurrection, So the greatest news of the greatest news is the resurrection, if that makes sense. So we see that. We see this idea of metanarrative that we're all drawn to great stories. We see the richness of the fact that it is true, which is why it's so deeply impactful for us. And we have these lectionary passages. And we get to see the wisdom of the church placing these passages together, meaning that they have to be read in some way, in light of the other. And you think, wow, you have this great Ephesians passage that tells us before the foundations of the earth, God predestined us to be sons and daughters by adoption, that we might have forgiveness. And then we see Herod slaughtering babies. And we might wonder to ourselves, how do those two things relate? How does it relate that Paul is telling us we've been predestined before the foundations of the earth to have this great news, access to forgiveness and peace, through the work of Christ, in relation to the story of King Herod slaughtering babies seeking to kill Christ. And it's because we have to see the entirety of Scripture as working wholly interconnectedly. As St. Augustine said, the New Testament is concealed within the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is revealed within the New. These aren't just two separate things having nothing to do with it. Sometimes we get influenced in our interpretations by our cultural upbringing. So most of us in here probably have come to an Anglican uh, church from outside from other communions. And most of those communions are probably not Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox. Most of them uh, are probably heavily influenced by the evangelical movements of the world that probably led many of us to Christ, which have had great impacts on the spreading of the gospel. But in those interpretive lenses, there are some, sometimes some mistakes that can get in. And we can, without even knowing it, become what uh, theologians call dispensationalists. Or those who see Israel and the Old Testament as one separate dispensation, and then church and the New Testament as a separate dispensation. But properly seeing the scriptures in their entire context We see that God is a covenant-making God and that all of his covenants are leading towards an end, namely the end that is described by St. Paul in Ephesians, that he is predestining all of us to have access to this forgiveness that is won by the work of Christ on the cross and through the resurrection. So when we understand scripture as working wholly collectively, All together, one great story, which is pointing us to the greatest story, namely the rightly ordered nature of existence. We can then understand a little bit about how Ephesians 1 might work with Matthew 2, what it has to do with Jeremiah, where this promise of Israel getting called back and rejoicing that finally everything's going to be okay. How do these three things 
work together. What we see, though the gospel might seem like the sad passage in the lectionary passages we've read today, that it's doing a fair amount. If the Old Testament is revealed in the New, then it, we, we have to read the New Testament as the writers and those early Christians would have read it. And they would have read it very much through a Jewish lens, especially the Gospel of Matthew, given that his audience is primarily Jewish Christians, right? So let's see what Matthew is doing in this Gospel passage that allows us to see it as a part of the broader story. And then what are those implications therein? So we notice some parallels in this passage that obviously set Jesus Christ as a a new and better Moses. There are similarities here in this story with Moses. We recognize that Jesus is in Egypt, so there's that obvious easy parallel with Moses. We also recognize that an evil and tyrannical king is seeking to maintain control by slaughtering children, trying to snuff out any threats to his power. Um, We see that Jesus is taken and hidden away, just like Moses was taken and hidden away, right? It, It is the beginning of this revelation that Matthew is showing to the readers that would have read it in the first century and also to us that God was working something together in the midst of Egypt, when Pharaoh was tyrannically ruling, he began that work in and through Moses, and he was going to complete the work in and through Christ. Just as we see foreshadows of, uh, of Christ in Genesis 3, when we fall, that a promise is that a descendant will crush the head of the serpent, the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ's redemptive work, And God's plan to bring all of human history to this place where we can once again be restored to the creative order for which we were made, right? What makes this terribly sad thing, and we we celebrate this, uh, Ford sent out lots about the saints over the last week. We celebrate the, uh, the day of these children being slaughtered, the holy innocents, as they've been called for centuries and centuries in the church. Because even in the midst, and especially in the midst, of immense evil and the the power of the darkness of this world, Christ's work is beginning to undo all of that. All of it. So what is it that we've been predestined for? We've been predestined to live on this side of that story and to become a part of that story, which is the greatest story ever told. We, we have access not only to forgiveness for our individual sins, but, but Christ also remade the world. The story of the church is very much things like Herod, things like Pharaoh become undone. The story of the growth of the church is that that, that empire that sanctioned Herod, allowed Herod to rule in such a tyrannical way, eventually fell, and it didn't, fell, it didn't fall by war, but it fell by the overwhelming number of Christians that happened to become a part of the Roman citizenry, that there, there was no longer a choice as to whether Rome could continue to persecute Christians because the gospel spread so beautifully and powerfully 
that to persecute the Christians would have been to persecute the majority of the Roman citizenry. Right. It's, it's all a part of that story. And so what is the hope, the takeaway that God was in control in Egypt? God was in control in this passage where these holy innocents were murdered by an evil tyrant. God was in control when the Roman Empire was persecuting the new church. God is in control in the midst of our lives when things are in turmoil He is in control around the world. He is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What does it mean for us to be a part of that story? What it means is that we may and very likely will suffer. The entirety of the New Testament seems to promise that we're promised to be hated by Christ ourselves. The world hated me. They will certainly hate you. Right. We, we are promised by St. Paul that we will walk through these sufferings, but he goes on to say we count these present sufferings to pale in comparison to the weight of glory that is to come. We see that as the, the we, we celebrated St. Stephen, the martyr, the holy innocents, St. John, all of, these, all of these people who for their faith and for the peace of the gospel to spread laid their lives down. We may walk through that suffering. We may walk through difficult times. But what does it mean for our story as individuals, as a city, as a community to be a part of the greatest story that's ever been told? It's it's the idea that we never lose hope. We never lose faith. Despite what may come, what may hit us, we know that there is a God who is control of all of human history who is working all of human history towards an end, and that end will be eucatastrophic. It will be a sudden, great, and wonderful happy ending. We don't know how. We don't know how it will happen. And in the meantime, we'll walk through difficulty. But we'll walk through it with our heads held high, understanding that Christ is working all things towards an end where there will be peace. It's the greatest story ever told. It's why we're drawn to great epic narratives that at least contain an element of that story. It's why we love them so much. It's why they bring us comfort. It's why they bring us peace. It's because it's true and we get to rest in that. And so as we begin this, this new year and we wonder how we'll make it through the difficulties that are flying all around us. I think a lot of times it's easy for Christians to be in dismay when they see the state of the world. But we need not be in dismay. We simply need to preach Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. We simply need to come and receive the grace that, that God gives us here in the sacraments on a regular basis. That we might be sustained by him to live for him to his glory and to our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing our stories to become a part of this, your great story. Father, I pray that you would permeate our hearts, that your spirit would draw us ever deeper in to the story of your work and what you're leading us to. Father, I pray that you would use us to invite other people whose stories maybe feel disconnected and sad and filled with sorrow, that we might invite them into the story of hope redemption, peace, that this would be a year uh, here in our city, here in our communities, our families, our lives, where those who don't know you 
but yet look around the world filled with dismay for the, for the sorrow and the sadness that they would come to know you, that they would find the peace that only you can offer, that you would be glorified and that we might enjoy you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.